are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Today, I am speaking with Donna Lynn Washington, who teaches English at Kingsborough Community College in New York. She is the editor of John Jennings Conversations from the University Press of Mississippi, and she is the senior editor and writer at Review Fix. As well, she has done work on Frank Yerby, and her essay, Frank Yerby and His Readers, appears in Rediscovering Frank Yerby Critical Essays. She has also contributed essays to comic series such as Bitterroot. Today, we will talk about her teaching, comics, Frank Yerby, and Lillian Smith's Buying a New World with Confederate Bells from the winter 1942-43 issue of South Today. Thank you for joining me today, Donna Lynn. Oh, great to be here. Thanks. I hope everything is well and the weather's good. It's starting to cool off here, but let's just jump right in. So recently the LES Center had a reading group that we did and was well attended. We're going to do more in the future, probably coming up in later September, October. So be on the lookout for that. And you participate in that reading group. And my question is, had you ever heard of Smith before you read anything for that group? Not her complete, not her complete articles. I would read like Twitter, Twitter feeds from the, uh, from the Lillian Smith Center. And I found them interesting. So I would, you know, I would go and I looked her up, I Googled her, but I hadn't read complete articles until the reading group. And I found that the reading group was really interesting and fascinating. I really enjoyed it. And we read, we had like five essays during that group, you know, not reading any novels or anything to kind of cut back on time and what people had to kind of put into it. And today we're going to talk about, of course, you know, buying a new world with Confederate bills. But I just want to ask you before we really get started, you know, were there any readings that stuck out to you, that one or one of the others that kind of stuck out in your mind? Oh, the address to white Southerners or intelligent white Southerners was the art, the essay that stuck out to me the most. When she says, we need to assess the damage we are responsible for. We need to tell that total deficit over and over to ourselves rubbing it in like salt until it stings us into action. And that was like the main quote that stuck out to me, that we have to continuously and perpetually do this. We can't just just sit on our laurels. We have to remain vigilant in this idea of continuing to end systemic racism and that intelligent white Southerners are able to do that, or at least willing to do that. And of course, that piece is addressed to whites specifically, and she right. does a lot of her stuff to whites specifically, and it's really important that she says, of course, we need to assess the damage we are responsible for. Right. And too often placing the blame on, on others and not on, on whites and white supremacy and systemic racism, the way that that functions. So looking at oneself, which she does a lot through her work, I need to go back and find that quote. I focused on other things when I looked at that. So I need to go back and, and find and dig into that quote because it's important because that's what Bitterroot does, for one. That's what other comics do too. Right. Which leads us, of course, to comics and superheroes because you 
you teach with comics, you work on comics. Like I said, you have an essay in Bitterroot. You have the conversations with John Jennings, who's a comics creator. And when we were preparing for the reading group, I started noticing your Twitter threads. And two or three of them really caught my eye because when you're posting threads on Twitter, you started talking about the connections between Lillian Smith and specifically superhero narratives and Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. One that stood out was you comparing Smith's Buying a New World with Confederate Bills and Captain America's Civil War. And specifically, you pointed out the last paragraph in that essay. And the last paragraph in the essay, Smith writes, the price will be high and each of us must pay for it out of our own savings, out of our own courage and imagination and integrity and wisdom. The price will be high, but it will be a good bargain, a fine buy for us and for all the Earth's children. Can you talk a little bit about kind of connecting that with Captain America Civil War? All right. Um, actually, that particular passage was from Witcher Soldier, when Steve says the price of freedom is high, and it was nearly the exact same lines as Smith was saying. And part of what I, I realized about that was they were, they might have been around at the same time as well. And that whole idea where right afterwards, Falcon says, did you think of that off, off the top of your head? Or did you, did you um, get it, did you prepare for it beforehand? And I wondered about that. And he might have read that around the same time Smith had published it. Because according to the film, he went into the ice at the end of the war, like 45. In the comics, he went into the ice in 43. So it might have been, he could have read that, that same idea about the price of freedom is high in that same instance. Because when I look at the thread and the quote from both, they say near the exact same thing. And Falcon's, his wonderment at that, like he just thought about that like right away. He's like, no, I didn't just think about that. That's something he's probably been thinking about for 70 years about the idea of winning this battle or winning this war. Because before he thought he was fighting Nazi Germany, now he's fighting Hydra. It's the same principle, the same idea of white supremacy, systemic racism, oppression, was the same things that Steve Rogers was fighting for back in 43, the same thing that Lillian E. Smith is writing about in her, in her essay, in her article. And the idea that the price of freedom is high, but it's a price I'm willing to pay. And I bet you're willing to pay it too, is what Steve says in his speech. And he doesn't expect anyone to come along with him, but he would like it or appreciate it if other people would, because the price of freedom is high, but it's a price I'm willing to pay. And then Lillian E. Smith says it, the price of freedom is high. It's always high. The price of anything worth fighting for is going to be high. And they both pay for it. I mean, I'm thinking about, right. about Lillian and the fact that, you know, critics maligning her for her work. And this is before Killers of the Dream. This is before Strange Fruit. She was praised for Strange Fruit. And then she was maligned for Killers of the Dream, saying you're, you're, you're too radical, basically. And then she kind of struggled with that the rest of her life of, wanting to be viewed as an artist, wanting to be viewed as saying important things, but then being kind of pushed to the side. And then of course, Steve with Civil War later on and everything like that. So yeah, that's a really interesting connection and makes total sense to me. Right, I mean, that idea continues in Civil War 
where he said where the speech that's used in the comics is said by Peggy Carter's niece Sharon, where she says, compromise where you can, where you can't don't. Even if someone tells you everything you're doing is is wrong, it's your duty to step plant yourself like a tree to to say no, you move. I mean I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essentially the idea is stay within, don't compromise your principles. Don't compromise who you are as a person. If you're willing to fight for this thing, then fight for it. I would say the extension of what happens in Winter Soldier continues in Civil War. And that idea of, I know, Steve knows, that whatever Bucky is doing in Civil War, it's not him. And he has to stand by his convictions, even if it means ending his friendship, ending the Avengers, ending everything else. He has to be able to follow through with this thing. And it costs him everything. It costs him his friend again, who has to go go back into the ice. And it costs him the Avengers, his new family, to be able to stand by his convictions. By the end of the Civil War, he's on the run. But he has to maintain the idea, at least Bucky is still alive. At least he's found new formed allies in T'Challa and Black Panther. At least he has realized that even though things are broken, they can be repaired again, which happens years later, but it still can be repaired again. And it's the discussion of freedom and democracy, too. I mean, exactly. Democracy doesn't necessarily come up within those discussions with, in the films that I remember, but they're definitely interrelated, which is what Smith focuses on as well, is the fact that democracy has to exist with freedom and you have to be able to pay the price for freedom and what true freedom is. Exactly. What you're doing is not freedom. Right. In and, the comics, it's more, it's more political and right. sociopolitical in that sense because Steve Rogers is taking a definitive stand and he's purposely opposing Tony Stark in this superhero registration act. That's what brings them apart because it does feel too much Nazi Germany having a, wearing a badge or wearing, having to be able to register to say, this is who I am as a person. But it's not like a, it's a job. It's saying, I'm this way biologically and I can't help that. And what Steve is saying is, we should have the right to choose whether or not we expose ourselves. It's like he tells Tony, you chose to get rid of all your Iron Man suits, do all those things. In the end, we lose our right to choose when we don't keep things in our own hands. Yeah. When we don't, when we, when we compromise our principles or work in moderation, then all things are lost. We have to be able to commit and to be able to go be extreme when we can. And if that means scorched earth, it has to happen like that. Well, that leads us, we can go on and on about that, but that leads me to something else too that I was thinking about as I was rereading some of this with comics. Because near the beginning of buying a new world Confederate bills, Smith writes this, he says, it is just possible that old answers which seem true in the tight rigid frame of the Southern past are based on assumptions that are no longer valid. It is just possible that the white man is no longer the center of the universe. It is just possible that even German Nazis, British imperialists, and white Southerners will have to accept the fact that it has been old news to the rest of the world for a long, long time. And rereading that and thinking about the connections you've made with comics and Smith, 
I started thinking specifically about the perpetuation of this myth that comics fandom and readers are majority white male. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Right. I was thinking about this idea too. And when you look at it, the majority of, let's say the gatekeepers of who we're saying are white male, aren't necessarily the creators or writers or artists of comics, but it's the people who are hiring those creators. And in a sense, they're, they are majority white male. It's people who are in power, right? The people who uh, make the decisions to hire or not to hire someone. I always think about the Marvel editor-in-chief. I can't remember what his name exactly. I think it's Bill Sabolsky or Sabowski. I'm not quite sure of his name. But I think he pretends to be Asian. When he was out as being a, a white American male, he still got a job as editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. And I was like, but you pretend to be, forget cultural appropriation. Your life was a total lie. And you failed upwards by having this job. Now you're a gatekeeper for writers and artists. How can you tell them this isn't authentic or this is authentic in comic book writing? Or do you just say, do what you want and hands off? When I think about people like that, I think about also the comics we consume, right? Majority of people who, well, let's just, I'm just saying it loosely. I don't know exactly the numbers of the stats, but the majority of writers, artists, creators, illustrators, letterers, colorists, are people of color, there some many are female many are women non-binary you know lgbtq so when you think about this perpetuation of this myth of white and male i don't think of it as the actual people in the creating community i think of it more as the people who are in charge the ones who have the ability to hire and fire people and that's where the power lies they are mostly white and male and I think that the, the way people say, oh, well, this is, in that sense, yes, it's not a myth because the people who are allowed, not allowed, but the people who are editor-in-chief, the people who are, um, they're mostly white and they're male. But what does that leave for us, for those of us who not only consume comics, but write comics, write for comics, do the artwork for comics, who there, in a sense, can be the gatekeepers to what we consume. And they make the decisions or choices as to what goes and, you know, what's greenlit and what's not. So the myth in who's creating the comics, obviously, yes, it's a myth. But it's true in the sense of the people who are doing the hiring and firing of artists and creators. And we have to we have to remember that, and I always point this out to to students and and people too that even with black characters when they came in specifically black characters in the seventies and the late sixties, I'm thinking Black Panther. Um, he didn't receive that there wasn't a black writer of Black Panther until 1998. Right. Right. So talk so talking about the gatekeepers who's doing and there's more diversity of course in the field now, but even with all the strides that say somebody like Don McGregor and Billy Graham, who was, who was African-American, who the artist, 
made with jungle action, still there wasn't a black writer until then. But I was thinking about Sibulski too, and the fact that you were talking about him falling up and presenting himself as something he wasn't, which makes me think of, not necessarily presenting himself as something he wasn't, but makes me think of Frank Yerby too. And these whole discussions of identity and the way that we, the way that others identify us, but then conversely, the way we identify ourselves. We can't get into Yerby's history. I mean, it's too much to to get into for the time we have. But Yerby was born in Augusta. His mom was um, Scotch-Irish. His dad was was Black and Seminole, African-American Seminole. And he could have passed for white. I mean, there were times when he, when he was, people thought he was white. He was famous African-American novelist. Most of his books were Book of the Month Club. He wrote 33 novels. He was the first um, African-American writer to have a book option off for a film. So The Foxes of Harrow, his first novel in 1946. He won the O'Henry Award, second um, African-American author to do that for Health Card in 1944. He expatriated, of course, to Europe in the 1950s and spent the rest of his life there and died, of course, late 80s, early 90s. I see a lot of similarities between Lillian Smith and Frank Derby. Smith was white, we know, and a woman. Um, and Yerby was black, Seminole, Scots, Irish. And he always said, my, probably my favorite quote from him, my favorite quote from him is, I despise adjectives. Adjectives are the enemies of nouns. And I think about that when I think about <laughs> how I describe him and how, I, how he would describe himself. But they were both from Georgia. They were both writers and both in their own ways challenged whiteness, deconstructed whiteness and white supremacy. Smith, through her extensive essays, memoirs and political texts, and even through her novels, and Yerby specifically through his novels. The question is, these are both authors who have really been pushed to the side. I mean, we know Smith for her, for her work on race. We know her for Strange Fruit and Pillars of the Dream. The essays that, that we read to the reading group, people don't know. Her work with the camp, of course, people don't know. Things like that. Yerby, really nobody. I'll talk to people and they'll say, hey, I read him as a kid or I snuck reading his books because they were dirty or whatever. You know, they were supposedly yeah. dirty books. Kind of the same thing with Strange Fruit. And they were kind of the first experience to like romance novels. He was a romance writer too, as we've talked about, you and I. Right. But my question is, why do we need to bring their voices back? Why are they important? And there are so many other important authors too that have fallen to the wayside. But, but I think especially them at this moment seem to really speak to a lot of things that we're talking about in our local, national, and global moment. So why do you think their voices need to be back in the literary historical discussions that we're having at this time? Oh, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Unfortunately, they still are timely and they're timeless in a sense. And they're infinite because we still have systemic racism. We still have white supremacy. We still have oppression. We still have all the things that both Smith and Yerby were writing about. You could pick up Smith right now and open any of her essays we read in the reading group and they all speak to now the idea with black lives matter the idea with being able to say and be a a white ally or being an ally what does that mean and someone like smith to me is the ultimate white ally because she put herself out there she was someone who wrote and committed to what she was writing about she didn't back down from it she didn't try and like navigate the language of oppression and systemic racism she says no we are this is why we're all racist we have to check ourselves we have to figure out and say well what does this mean for us if if it's also trauma for us well not 
I'm not white. <laughs> but for, for white people, it's traumatizing as well. Uh, both, we all suffer from the trauma of slavery and systemic racism and Jim Crow. And we, we suffer all, and we suffer in different ways. Exactly. We all suffer from it. And Smith wrote about that. And her writing, it's the same way you can say the price of freedom is high or the price is high. And the same way that it says we need to continue this action, right? The price will be high and each of us must pay for it out of our own savings, right? That idea of it, it still has to continue happening. We can't like fall asleep on it. And the reason why Yerby and Smith are so timely and should continue to be read and should be back, brought back into print, right? Particularly with Yerby, is that, and his short, I think his short, his short stories that Dr. Watson. Yeah, Dr. Veronica Watson just republished some of Yerby's short stories that some that were published before and some that were previously unpublished that were up in the archives in Boston. Right. And many of those short stories are short. They're two and three pages long, but they're in your face. There's one or two characters that speak specifically to systemic racism. I'm going to strip everything away and I'm going to talk about this one thing and I'm going to give you a narrative that you cannot escape from. And Yerby does that with his longer novels but particularly with his short stories as well. The short story I gave to my class, can't remember the name of it right now at all, but it's the one with the doctor and the soldier who flips the bird or the ex-soldier. Right, salute to the flag. And that story is very much in your face. When my students went over it, they were like, it could be now. It could have been 40 years ago yeah. after Vietnam. It could have been... 20 years ago after the Gulf War. It could have been three months ago with, the, with all of the protests that were happening right. and the after effect. All those things still continue. And for Yerby and Smith, particularly with Smith, because her essays speak directly to people. It's not just some generality. It's, a, it's specifically to address to the intelligent white Southerner. Right why moderates, also moderates as well. It's addressed to, uh, to specific audiences, but you can still resonate and connect with those, those essays and those articles. And see, that, that's the other thing too that I forgot to mention about both of them, is that Smith addresses her writing, I would say, to whites, but she addresses it to herself as well. So she's doing that, but Yerby is the same. So Yerby was disparaging of Baldwin, saying that Baldwin preached to the choir. And then he was like, I write for the bigots and the inhaters. That's, that's another quote from that same interview that always sticks out to me. So he was writing specifically to whites as well. And he was subverting the classical Old South, Gone with the Wind, Moonlight and Magnolia myths and the William Faulkner narratives of Delcy and everything like that. He was subverting them for white readers. And he said some picked up on it, some didn't. Yet he was yeah. also he also wanted to make money to and make a living. Yes. But they're both writing to whites and they're both writing to whites in different ways, which is something that I think we need to explore a little bit more in how they addressed rhetorically. Because Smith, when she's speaking to SNCC members um, at All Souls or Mount Moriah, then her tone is considerably different than when she's talking to whites. 
You know, when she's talking at Kentucky State College and HBCU, totally different than when she's talking to whites. So looking at the way that those things kind of work is something good for the classroom or just for us to kind of take into consideration with Yerby, with Smith, with specifically with them. Right. I like how they're able, both are able to self-actualize and self-reflect. Yeah. Because those are the two most important things you need to do, not only as a person living in the world, but as a writer, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, how can I contribute or how have I contributed to oppression and white supremacy and systemic racism? What is my involvement in it? Do I hold power over someone else and haven't noticed it before? Am I privileged? Mm-hmm. How am I privileged? And all of those things, I see Smith, when she addresses um, her audiences, she also addresses herself. Right. And that idea of self-reflection, well, how do I contribute to this as well as self-actualization as, oh, I've done this thing. Well, now I have to continue to recommit to not, I would say not abusing my privilege, but not having my privilege be something that I can't fall back. I have to acknowledge it and say, in this moment, am I using my privilege? And how am I using my privilege? Because someone like Smith She's able to use, she was able to use her privilege in a sense of being able to perpetuate and fight for human rights and black rights. And with Yerby, I think it's more of the idea of subversion, like you said before. He's, he is subverting. He say, you're buying my books, but there's going to be one time or one way in which something might change your mind. It may happen, may dig deep into your consciousness and you may think it's your idea, but it's actually not. But in some way it's implanted in you to have that sense of self-reflection as well. And I like the way that you, that you said the self-reflection because with Smith, I always think of Killers of the Dream and that's really her kind of self-reflective memoir. And she talks about little stories here and there, but she never directly comes out and says, I'm examining myself. Even though she she said in, in different you know interviews and letters and stuff that it was a traumatic or not traumatic but it was a difficult process to write that book but if you look at her writing I was just looking back over where you were talking the the last paragraph that we read the price will be high and if you look at her use of pronouns and the way that she uses pronouns she includes herself it's not the price will be high and each of you must pay for it out of his or her own savings it's and each of us must pay out of it of our own savings out of our own courage She's presenting herself. Sometimes she switches, but she's presenting herself for the most part within that conversation and within that discussion as well through that rhetorical move of that plural pronoun. Right. And even before that, she says, yet we, their grandchildren, cling as compulsively to the past and its harsh, limited, stagnant way of life as did our grandfathers before us. So that self-reflection and self-actualization is in a sense twofold, I guess you would say. That not only is she saying that we've, oh, we've clung to it, and like, oh snap, we've clung to it. Like that means it's not just something that we learned, it's in a sense ingrained in us. We're not just taught it, it's in a sense passed down, like tradition. Yeah. It's a very, it's a scary thing. Which is what her and and Yerby both deal with. 
Oh, we're running out of time though. This has been great and we can go on forever talking about Yerby and Smith and comics yeah. and video games and didn't even get into that and everything right? else, but we can do that another time. Congratulations on your book. John Jenny's Conversations just came out. So make sure to go check it out if you haven't already ordered it. And make sure to go check out Dr. Veronica Watson's uh, The Short Stories of Frank Yerby. It's a great collection of Yerby short stories, like I said, that were published and that some that weren't published. And it's a good introduction to Yerby to see exactly what he's doing. So thank you for being with us today and we'll talk soon. Oh, great. Thanks so much, Matthew. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.